One very important element of the Christian life is the matter of sanctification, the matter of being cleansed as we engage in the Lord's table once a month, which is a command, it's not an option. The Lord has called us to remember what Christ accomplished. And I can remember as a child growing up in a, in a church where there really wasn't any solid teaching. There certainly wasn't a focus on the gospel. But there was a regular commitment to the Lord's table, at least in terms of practice. I, I didn't understand why we would do that. And even as, a, as an adult man, I feel as though I had a very limited understanding, even as a believer, as to why we would do this on a regular basis. And really, ultimately, it is simply to remember. It's to remember what Christ accomplished. And you, you see that in 1 Corinthians 11. You see that in the Gospels as well, that as we partake of the Lord's table, it's not as if the Lord shows up more than he already had. Where one is gathered, Christ is there. Christ indwells the believer. The Lord's table is a picture. It's, a, it's an action that we take. Yes, it's obedience to engage in the Lord's table, but as we do it, what we're really doing is remembering the atonement. We're remembering that Christ granted, Christ accomplished the forgiveness of sins. It was an efficacious act. He didn't roll the dice hoping that people would respond. He died in such a way that Forgiveness was granted to those for whom he died. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we do that in remembrance of that certain and absolute accomplishment. The matter then of sanctification is not to be resaved. It's not as if you are reuniting or rekindling your relationship with the Lord. A lot of evangelical Christianity is focused on the, the reconjuring up of some sort of, sort of love and feeling. You know, I, I got dry, people will say. And, and we can relate to that for sure. The matter of walking in or by the Spirit. I think that that issue in my own life personally, a misunderstanding of what it is to walk by the Spirit is probably the most detrimental issue in my own life spiritually. Preventing me from walking by the Spirit in such a way that I can rest in the grace of Christ to have accomplished what's necessary for me to engage in sanctification, faithfulness in ministry, relationships that honor Christ. We have this superimposed mystical idea about walking by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is to obey the Spirit and not to look for some mystical extra message that you're going to get when you're walking down the street or you're in a movie or you're having a conversation. He has given you all that's necessary to walk by the Spirit in His Word. You do not need an epiphanal experience or a second blessing. There is no such thing as a second blessing. To be indwelt by the Spirit takes place in the moment of salvation. And then you and I have the necessary responsibility to therefore be filled with the Spirit. That's a different issue. To be filled with the Spirit is not what takes place in the moment you are saved. To be filled with the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit, to obey the Spirit, to look at the Spirit's Word, to read God's Word. And you can rest then. Now for me personally, I'm going to get just for a moment back to that matter in my own life that I think was most detrimental to my spiritual growth. It was this idea that something needed to happen that I couldn't seem to experience. Initially, it was the concept of tongues, one of the gifts that ceased in the first century. 
You say, why do you believe they ceased? Because you don't see them after the first century in the Bible. They ceased. That's why. You say, but people do it today. That's not tongues. That's gibberish. You will not hear someone, it has not happened in our era or since the first century, that someone actually spoke in the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is clearly the, the giving of the ability to speak in a language not your own that someone else would hear, therefore, in their own language. That's the gift of tongues, not some foreign language that no one else understands. It was never that in the Bible. Isn't it interesting, though, that massive percentage of Christians today think that that's what tongues is? They've been duped deliberately by false teachers. And initially, for me, it was that I didn't speak in tongues. I thought, I'm missing something. Why am I missing something? When I got past that, because it's so clear in the Bible, it's a really solid, very basic teaching on the sign gifts, I got past that. But then there was still this need for me to sort of walk in a kind of an elevated cloud nine type way i got to have this feeling that I don't have. And even as a pastor, I can remember in one ministry in which I was involved, I can remember that it was my deliberate effort as I climbed the stairs from the first floor to the second floor where I would teach every Sunday morning that I would plead with the Lord to help me to walk by the Spirit, not understanding what it meant. And so I was looking for some mystical, emotional experience that would kind of overtake me and trust that the Lord would help me and cause me, as I taught, to be in the Spirit in some way that wasn't a deliberate effort on my part. And it was damaging. You do see it in the experiential expressions of so many, many, many people, particularly on TV. And I would plead with you to abandon that and look to the Scripture for what it means to be faithful to Christ. Now, what am I talking about? I've talked about a lot of things in the intro here. What I'm talking about is the matter of sanctification. As you trust the Lord to change you, to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And you want that. If you're in Christ, you desire to be less like you and more like Christ. You desire, as John did, to decrease. That he would increase. You desire for people to have a picture of Jesus Christ based on their interaction with you. I had a friend years ago who said to me, you know, Todd, what you should be looking for in a wife is a person with whom, when you interact, you walk away and think, I love Christ more. That should be true in every relationship that you have that you call a Christian relationship. You can't have that with an unbeliever. You cannot have edification with an unbeliever. And so your work in a relationship with an unbeliever must be driven toward the salvation of that person's soul. You cannot let your hair down. You cannot have a casual relationship with an unbeliever. But with believers, the role, the goal in our lives is to encourage and strengthen one another so that we're able to be engaged in that evangelism more effectively. Now, again, back to the central issue of sanctification, spiritual growth. Why? Why would I care? Why does it matter? Especially when we rest so heavily, and I think we should, because the scripture calls us to, to depend upon the sovereignty of God. Why should I pursue holiness? Why should I pursue godliness? What's the point? If God is sovereign, why would I not simply relax and just enjoy life with no real direction or particular pathway in life? Why does it matter? One day we'll all be dead, and with the details of our lives, 
we might say, will they really matter? I'll be in heaven. Who cares what the shadow of my life will be depicted by? I think this passage will serve to help us greatly in our resting in God's sovereignty while working out our salvation. And to that end, point number one, I want to ask you to pursue godliness together. To pursue godliness together. This morning we will observe God's purifying judgment of the world so that we together will live purified lives while awaiting Christ's return. This is a matter of doing this together. You don't need group therapy. You need group sanctification. And this is what Peter is calling you and me to here in this passage. I believe that the whole of the book of 1 Peter is a call to group sanctification. We should pursue godliness together. Let's look at verse 11 again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Interesting, isn't it, that Peter poses this as a question with a whole lot of information in the question. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It's almost as if he's asking a question that he's given the full answer to, but he hasn't really. He's given most of the information, but he's asking you to think it through more fully. What sort of people? He doesn't say. He's not asking what sort of individual. Interesting, huh? In an evangelical Christian day where it's all about you and Jesus, and you don't need the church. You don't need a body. Everything in 1 Peter has to do with your personal sanctification in the context of group sanctification, ultimately for the glory of God. And sadly, there are those, and I mean a lot of those, who think that Christianity is about you and Jesus. And it is not. It certainly wasn't that way in the Old Testament. You had a very, very collective environment where the nation of Israel was called to trust the Lord, particularly under the reading of the scripture and the explanation of the scripture and then the repetition of that. That was the primary manner by which people experienced spiritual growth. It was the reading and the explanation of God's word. Read Nehemiah 8 for the narrative on that. It was group sanctification. It was a collective effort. And while this isn't in my notes, I feel compelled at this moment to simply ask you, what's the greater priority of your life? Is it, is it some distraction that's taken you in a substantial way away from the body of Christ? Now, we're not about attendance at the Anchor Bible Church, as interestingly we've been accused of. We're not. We're about involvement. We're about faithful participation. And you and you alone can determine what that looks like with the help of other believers. you got these two faulty ideas. One is that you ask the leadership to make every decision in your life. And the other is that you don't involve the leadership. And you don't even involve people in the body of Christ. And you kind of do it on your own. And both are not only faulty, they're detrimental. And I think ultimately will lead to destruction. The person who can't make decisions on his own with counsel from others, uh, only interested in being spoon-fed by, by others, will never really ultimately grow in his relationship with the Lord and be ultimately effective in ministry in the body of Christ. But the person who wants nothing to do with seeking counsel from others is a fool. That's that's not my words. You see that all throughout the Proverbs, over and over and over. 
The wise man seeks wisdom from other people. He needs the church. These things in verse 11, these things that Peter refers to that will be dissolved, uh, refer back to the previous text. The heavenly bodies, right? The heavenly bodies on the earth. And we talked about that some last week. The heavenly bodies we determined are the heavenly bodies of the planetary matter. Specifically the sun, the moon, and the stars. All planetary matter, really. Matthew 24, verse 29 Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Peter has a number of times utilized this if-then or since-then terminology to say that because of this, then that. We call this a cause and effect relationship. Since the cause exists, the effect will exist. This, ha- this happens, and it necessarily triggers that. The cause here is God's judgment in the dissolution of the heavenly bodies and the burning up of the earth. The effect of that cause is that you ought to be a sort of godly and holy people. That's, in this case, in this text, that's the motivation. It is that the earth and the heavens will be incinerated. Peter's putting much emphasis on the idea that the sort of people you are must be greatly affected by the imminent dissolution of the heavenly bodies and the burning up of the earth. Since the heavenly bodies and the earth will be incinerated, then you ought to determine what sort of people, collective, you will be in lives of holiness and godliness. And again, as a sidebar, but a very important one, the reality is you cannot do this alone. Now, what is this dissolution that motivates us? The word dissolved here is to be broken into parts or torn down, separated into component parts, destroyed, dispersed, to disappear as a sugar cube dissolves in hot water and is dispersed into that water, never again to exist in the form of a solid. As an insect disintegrates in the intense heat of a roaring campfire, so the heavens and the earth shall be obliterated. Isaiah 34 verse 4 gives us some picture of this. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their host shall fall. Leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Again, Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? But why? Why would God's coming judgment on the heavens and the earth move us to ask what sort of people we ought to be? Why would the incineration of the world move us to be holy and godly? Back to verse 7 for some of that answer. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The ungodly. They will be destroyed in that destruction. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The full wrath of God. I believe we can say that we have seen a shadow of the wrath of God. And it is the wrath of God in our time. But not the fullness of the wrath of God that will be poured out in the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Back to verse 17 in Romans 1 for some help in answering our question, why? Why would we choose sanctification? Why would we choose spiritual growth in light of this coming judgment that will come upon the ungodly? Verse 17 in Romans 1 says, For in it, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you have the NAS, it says from faith to faith. It's basically the same thing. But the issue is that the faith of one man leads to the faith of the other. For every one of you who have faith in Christ, you as an ungodly person received the gospel from a godly person who loved you enough to tell you about it. You didn't become a Christian by default or by inheritance. It was the result of God's kindness to you by bringing a godly person into your life to share truth with you. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he, he defines what the unrighteous look like. But this question here is, is packed with a doctrinal statement. Do you not know? And then he gives a fact. And that fact is that the unrighteous, the ungodly, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to explain what ungodliness looks like by saying, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is a hopeless state for the person who practices sin. It is a hopeless condition. He is destined as being ungodly and unrighteous for receiving the wrath of God. And then there is this all-important adversative in the scripture, this conjunction that causes us to switch gears as a result of what he has said and what he is now saying. He's given a very, very bleak picture for those who are engaged in the practice of sin. And then he says, but, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Just prior to that, in verse 11, I'm still in 1 Corinthians 6, 
Paul says, and such were some of you. If you've been granted righteousness, it's not because you achieved it. It's not because you climbed a spiritual stairway and you found your way to that righteousness and you reached out and you grabbed that righteousness and you added it to your life and you clothed yourself and robed yourself in that righteousness. It was that in your unrighteousness, God, by his grace and in his kindness and in his love, granted the righteousness of Christ to you. Such were some of you, ungodly. That's why, that's why you and I would choose sanctification. That's why we would choose holiness. That's why we would choose godliness. Because we were such as these. And for their sake, we would choose the glory of God. In fact, ultimately, for the glory of God, we would choose a sanctified life that makes us winsome that enables us to speak truth to people who otherwise wouldn't hear it. I was watching a YouTube video just a few days ago of a friend of mine from seminary who went on this rant that you and I have heard many times. He said, what we're doing is we're out there sharing the gospel with people. We're telling them what they need to hear. And people are coming to us and saying, you're driving them away from Christ. And he made this statement that you and I have heard. You can't drive people away from Christ any more than they already are. No, but you can destroy any opportunity for a relationship with them if you act obnoxiously and jump down their throats. The sanctified life, the holy life, the godly life does not stand in people's faces with an elevated bullhorn and shove truth down their throats. That never helped anybody. Okay, so it doesn't drive them further away from Christ, but it prevents you from leading them to Christ because they will rightly think that you are obnoxious. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. A Christian is committed to the ministry of friendship. The ministry of seeing people recognized to God through Christ. It's what he's about. It's what ought to run through our minds in everything we do when we interact with the lost. Verse 19, Paul there says, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That we have this privilege to communicate the reality that God grants righteousness to the repentant. God shows his kindness to those who will confess and forsake their sin. To trust Christ's completed work for the full forgiveness of sins. In verse 20, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul, heavily dependent upon the sovereignty of God, called believers to plead with people to be reconciled to God. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In that statement, Paul is calling attention to the reality that it is by the grace of God bringing salvation to a people comes through a willingness to be sanctified. That call is upon each and every one of our lives. As we endeavor to honor Christ in all that we do, we do that collectively. We do that together. Paul speaks of his own ministry to the Thessalonians. He speaks of his ministry saying, ultimately, that we proved to be faithful. And therefore, you could emulate us. And sadly, not only in Paul's life, but in many pastors' life, my own life included, at the point where you begin to address a lack of sanctification, a lack of interest in holiness, a lack of interest in godliness, a lack of interest in overcoming sin, there are those who will leave. There are those who will run. Why? Because there is a disinterest in holiness. There is a disinterest in godliness. They want the collective experience of enjoying other people, but there is not an interest in collective godliness. Paul's life as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a missionary was devoted to helping people understand the value of a collective pursuit of godliness. Tom Schreiner says about this that Knowing the outcome of this world should motivate believers to live a new quality of life. Being driven by the reality that there is an ultimate judgment coming for the ungodly. And at the same time recognizing that God has placed people in your life who desire the kind of sanctification, the kind of holiness, the kind of godliness that is appealing to those that the Lord is drawing unto the Son. should motivate you. It should motivate us to be collectively sanctified. Schreiner also says eschatology and ethics are firmly wed in 2 Peter. Eschatology and ethics are firmly wed in 2 Peter. The doctrine of the end times, along with how to live your life, are exhibited with a perfect marriage in the book of 2 Peter. So your eschatology, which, by the way, is simply a term that means your end times doctrine. Eschatos, the term meaning last times. Your eschatology will have great bearing on your life. As your awareness of the future grows, your awareness of your need for a certain kind of life grows. You desire to be refined 
and you're willing to undergo and experience the sufferings that lead to that sanctification. You'll want to be a productive member of a holy and godly people. You want to be holy. You want to be sanctified, cleansed, set apart. This simply means to grow spiritually. It means to be conformed to the image of Christ. In Romans 8, 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see that? The doctrine of election not only makes certain the salvation of the elect, but it promises the sanctification of the elect. And as we saw from Romans 1.17, that sanctifying work, that faith manifest in a person's life leads to the faith of other people's lives. 1 Peter 4 verse 10, Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory. Working out your salvation through the manifestation, the implementation of your spiritual gifts. Being responsible, being a good steward of God's varied grace in your life with a dissemination of spiritual gifts. You say, I don't know what mine are. It's not that hard. First, you have to know what they are in the Bible. You have to know which ones still exist. We can help you with that. It's not hard. We can look at the, the Word of God together and hopefully conclude the same things. But for God's glory, for Jesus Christ's glory, you and I must be willing to serve with strength, to speak in a way that honors God, to stand before people with the word of God, trembling, believing that we must get it right. You cannot play fast and loose with God's word if you are gifted to teach God's word. And I on a daily basis, give great thanks to the Lord for those of you who teach my children because I know that for you it is a very, very serious matter to get it right. And as I sit down with my, my boys throughout the week and we have family devotions, I'm, I'm usually quite thrilled and excited with what they have learned on Sunday from you. In 1 Peter 1, 22, Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, Peter has given us all the theology necessary for being a sanctified people. It begins with having trusted Christ in obedience, and that that then manifests itself in a sincere brotherly love. Peter's command here is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why is it that it's become so extensively acceptable in the evangelical church for people to be at odds with one another and to pretend that they are not? How is it that that is so vastly common? And yet, 
Everything you see from the scripture is that we must speak the truth to one another in love. Now, those are Paul's concise words in Ephesians 4. But here, Peter is pretty clear that we're to have a brotherly affection for one another. Why? Because you've been born again, not from perishable seed, but imperishable. So remarkably common. Uh, It's not common in our church, by God's grace. I'm not saying we're flawless and that it hasn't happened. But it's so very, very common in the worldly evangelical church that people get angry with each other and they don't deal with one another by the power of the Spirit of God, obeying the Scripture and loving one another enough to talk through things. They just leave. J.C. Ryle has said about this matter of holiness. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. That's the godly man. That's the man who communes with Christ. But Ryle has also said very well, a holy man will follow after charity and brotherly kindness. He will endeavor to observe the golden rule of doing as he would have men do to him and speaking as he would have men speak to him. He will be full of affection towards his brethren, towards their bodies, their property, their characters, their feelings, their souls. He who loves another, says Paul, has fulfilled the law, Romans 13.8. He will abhor all lying, slandering, backbiting, cheating, dishonesty, and unfair dealing, even in the least things. The shekel and cubit of the sanctuary were larger than those in common use. He will strive to adorn his religion by all his outward demeanor and to make it lovely and beautiful in the eyes of all around him. Alas! What condemning words are the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians and the Sermon on the Mount when laid alongside the conduct of many professing Christians? Close quote. The holy man pursues Christ and he engages with Christians. And he does so in unity. And he's not driven by fear of man that says, oh, I just don't want anybody upset with me. He's driven by God's glory and a love for people. That's willing, to, that's willing to confess sin and willing to address sin. So this isn't simply a matter of personal holiness. It's a matter of corporate holiness. It's a matter of a collective effort to be sanctified. Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Titus 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Again, the focus here is on interaction with people, a willingness to to live godly lives, to be sanctified together. So pursue godliness together. If you and I would be faithful to this text of Scripture, faithful to Christ who has given it to us, 
faithful to God our Father, then we will pursue godliness together. Point number two, we will wait for and quicken the day of God. We will wait for and quicken the day of God. Peter says here in verse 12, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, first of all, what is the day of God that is coming? Some believe that the day of God is an event other than the day of the Lord. I only found two commentators who thought they were possibly different events, the day of the Lord and the day of God. One, R.J. Bauckham, excellent commentator, said, whether Second Peter intends a distinction between the day of the Lord equaling Christ in verse 10 and the day of God equaling the Father here is very uncertain, close quote. And he's one of the commentators who lean toward the idea that they may be different events, but he said there's no way to determine that. P.H. Davids says, it looks as if the Lord in the previous part of the chapter is God rather than Jesus, although in practice it makes little difference. What is clear is that the day of the Lord and the day of God refer to the same eschatological event, which is also spoken of as the coming or parousia of Christ in 2 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 3. This overlapping terminology should make us extremely cautious in trying to separate these terms or in applying them to separate events, close quote. Tom Schreiner says, we are surprised to see Peter speak of the coming of the day of God, since that expression is unusual in the New Testament. The word coming, parousia, in chapter 1, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 4, refers to the coming of Christ. But the day of God refers to the day of the Father, not the Son. Nonetheless, the coming of God's day is inseparable from the future coming of Christ. When Christ comes, the day of God will commence. This world will be destroyed, and a new one will be instituted. Peter, therefore, continued to direct his readers to the coming of Christ, end quote. So what are these commentators saying? I think that what they're saying is that there is little or no evidence for the idea that the day of God is something different from the day of the Lord. Coming, as we've already mentioned, is the Greek term parousia, and it is presence or arrival. It's the presence of Christ or the arrival of Christ. This is the personal bodily presence of the Lord Jesus, which would certainly be the case with the day of the Lord. Peter makes no effort here to be addressing a separate event. He has just spoken of the day of the Lord in verse 10 and hasn't changed his flow of thought. In the same breath, he refers to the day of the Lord and then the day of God, and it certainly seems to be the same event. Then, he says, we are to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, using terminology that certainly describes the day of the Lord, his second coming, his return. There's only one other place in Scripture where the term the day of God is used, and it's the great day of God the Almighty in Revelation 16, 14, which by its context shows that it is clearly the day of the Lord. There's no question about that passage as to whether or not the author, John, is speaking of the day of the Lord. And he is. It's not some different event. With no other context for a separate event all throughout the scripture called the day of God, it seems best to believe that Peter is referring here to the day of the Lord. 
You remember Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter sees this matter of the day of the Lord, the day of God, as a very, very substantial issue. The day of God is something that we are to wait for, but interestingly, we are also to hasten. The scoffers in 2 Peter 3 verse 4 says, or will say, where is the promise of his coming? R.J. Bauckham says, this does not detract from God's sovereignty in determining the time of the end. While the scoffers will say, you know, you've been saying this all along, that the day of the Lord is coming, he's going to return, but where is that promise? That promise seems to be invalid because it has not happened. On the other hand, as we believe that it will happen and we trust in God's sovereignty to bring it about in an appointed time, we also believe that the scripture has called us to quicken its arrival. Why do we believe that? Because that's what the Bible says. R.J. Bauckham, again, this does not detract from God's sovereignty in determining the time of the end, but means only that his sovereign determination graciously takes human affairs into account. Nail that down in your understanding of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Let me read it again. This means only that his sovereign determination graciously takes human affairs into account. As we've said many times, God not only ordains the outcome, he ordains the means. He ordains the process. Let me ask you, why do you pray? You pray because you know that God uses prayer. We trust that God's sovereign decree has determined that all things will come to pass. And yet we see the command throughout scripture to pray. And we see that the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. And so we pray. And so when I was in the hospital, you prayed. And everything I've heard from every doctor I've spoken to is that this is quite remarkable. What you had is not something from which a person recovers quickly, and I did. And I believe that not only you, but saints across the country were praying. And the Lord used your prayer. While I was incapacitated and had no idea what was going on, so my prayers weren't worth much. But God used yours, and yet in his sovereign decree, he has determined that all things will come to pass. Peter says we are waiting and hastening the day. You can't argue with Peter. We're to bring that day about from an earthly perspective more quickly. The term here for waiting is to wait expectantly, to look for, to wait in suspense or even with anxiety. In verses 12 through 14, three times there is a reference to this idea of waiting for the day of God. The believer is to wait for Christ's return with eagerness. He's even to accelerate it. Yes, hasten or quicken it. Is this new theology for you? I confess that I haven't thought much about this. Peter forces thought uh, often, does he not? But in particular here, how though is this possible? Isn't God sovereign over the time of his return? Well, the Lord taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come. 
John said, come quickly, Lord Jesus, displaying a trust in the Lord, but wanting it to happen more quickly than not. In Acts 3, verse 19, we read, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, the parousia, the arrival of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of of his holy prophets long ago. Do you see here the chronology that repentance seems to accelerate the return of Christ? But doesn't God's sovereignty mean that it's fixed and man plays no role? No. It does not mean that man plays no role because God has ordained the means. God has ordained not only the outcome but also the process. Tom Schreiner says on this note, God would send his Christ and restore all things if Israel repented fully in reference to the passage from Acts 3. He says, but does not such an idea threaten divine sovereignty, his control over history? Was Peter suggesting that God himself does not know when the end will be since he does not know if his people will live in a godly way? We can dismiss the idea that the future is obscured from God, for if that were true, how could we know that history would ever end? After 2,000 years of history, how could we be sure that Christians would ever live righteously enough to bring about God's day? Divine sovereignty is not threatened, for God himself foreknows what his people will do. Indeed, he foreordains what people will do. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Lamentations 3.37 says, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Schreiner goes on to say, Nevertheless, such teaching must never cancel out the call to live godly lives and the teaching that our prayers and godliness can speed his coming. We must not fall prey to rationalism that either squeezes out divine sovereignty or ignores human responsibility. Both of these must be held in tension. And here, the accent falls on what humans can do to hasten the day of God. You should be exhilarated by this, as should I. We should be thinking that the godliness of our lives collectively together, as we live in unity, as we address sin with love and grace, as we endeavor to see ourselves collectively together being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we can expect that the day of God will come more quickly. You wait 
because God is sovereign, don't you? And you hasten because you are responsible, don't you? You trust in the Lord and his sovereignty, but you obey his commands. And there is a necessary tension with regard to those very important matters. Well, point number three, as we have said that we are to pursue godliness together, and we are to wait for and quicken the day of God, point number three, we are to believe God's promise of a righteous heavens and earth. I want you to believe God's promise of a righteous heavens and earth. Verse 13 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There are some events that will take place prior to the dissolution of the heavens and the earth and the creation of the new. According to 1 Thessalonians verse 4, Jesus will come in the clouds and take the dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ to be with him. Then there will be a seven-year tribulation where God will pour out his righteous judgment on all the nations, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So you and I, for those who are in Christ, we will not be here for that tribulation. The Lord will come and he will take us into the clouds to be with him. But at the end of that seven-year tribulationary period, Satan will be bound and the Antichrist and the false prophet will be overthrown and Christ and his saints will reign over the current earth for a thousand years in his messianic kingdom. This is God's fulfillment of his promise to Israel, which they forsook in their disobedience. God will grant them repentance and will give them their promised land. This will be a time of harmony, peace, and long life on the earth, as according to Revelation 19 and 20 and Daniel 7. But at the end of that thousand-year reign, Satan will be released. He will deceive all the nations. He will bring them all together in a collective army against God's saints. But he and his army will be devoured by fire from heaven. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And all men will be judged in Christ. The unsaved will be judged unto a physical resurrection. A bodily resurrection. And an eternal conscious suffering with no relief. Then God will burn up and dissolve the heavens and the earth as we know them. And replace them with the new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. In Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Romans 8, 21, Paul says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Revelation 21, verse 1, John tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So I ask you, why does godliness matter? When you know people who claim to be in Christ and lie so easily, it is as if dishonesty is a non-issue. And maybe there are multiple reasons why people think that it's not a problem. You know people who regularly and uninterruptedly slander Christians. You know people who gossip. You know people who distrust unreasonably so. But such were some of you. Why does it matter? Why does godliness matter? Why does holiness matter? Because there is a coming judgment. Because there is a coming judgment. And much unlike the doctrine of Seventh-day Adventism, we cannot believe in annihilationism. If ever there was a cult... If ever there was a corrupt organization, it's Seventh-day Adventism. And yet, of all the cults, which is the one that most Christians would say, well, they're Christians, it's Adventism. Why? Because it is most deceptive. And it's very appealing to think that if I don't get it right, at least I won't go to hell. I'll just cease to exist like that grasshopper I stepped on yesterday. Isn't this what we want? Isn't this that I read to you from Revelation 21? Isn't this what we want? To live forever with Christ where righteousness dwells and there's no foothold for unrighteousness? No tears? No disappointment? No gossip? No grudges? No slander? No distrust? No pain, no murder, no adultery, no disease, 
No misunderstandings. No broken relationships. No false conversions. Isn't this what we long for? And you say, well, but Todd, based on what you just described, I'm going to have to wait at least 1,007 years before I experience it. That's true. That's true. But you won't wait that long to experience the Christ who will reign in that kingdom. But you know people who today exhibit ungodliness and unholiness while proclaiming to be in that Christ. So what do we do? What do we do between now and then? We're to pursue collective godliness. We're to pursue sanctification together. Group sanctification. Back in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter gives us this picture. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You need a house of chosen stones with whom to serve collectively to honor the Lord Jesus Christ so that those who only stumble over the cornerstone will know the difference. The evangelical church has sadly painted a disappointing and damning picture of the Lord Jesus Christ with the idea that he simply says, come one, come all, as you are, and there's absolutely zero expectation of any kind of godliness or holiness thereafter. Well, he made a decision, therefore he's in. And that's not Christianity. Christianity is depicted in personal and collective godliness and holiness. So what do we do? How do we pursue that collective godliness? 1 Peter 3, verse 8 says it this way. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. The way Paul addresses that in Philippians 1 is to have sound doctrine. Paul requires of Timothy that he pay careful attention to his life and to his doctrine. These are Paul's words. Someone said to me years ago, you know, Todd, I'm not really interested in doctrine. I'm interested in Jesus. And I said, you just made a doctrinal statement. What you know about Jesus is your doctrine of Jesus. That is your Christology. If you understand anything about Jesus from the Bible, it's because you have received the doctrine of the Bible about Jesus. And again, Paul uses the word doctrine numerous times. Second thing we should do is to wait eagerly, to wait with anticipation. 
to long for his return, to plead with him to return, but in the same way that I think you shouldn't pray for people to have peace unless you're praying for them to be thankful. You ever do that? You know somebody's having a rough time, oh, Lord, give them peace. Don't do that. Pray that they would be thankful because according to Philippians 4, thanksgiving results in peace. Pray that they would receive the reconciliation of the God-man unto the Father and that therefore the enmity, the war would be over and they would have legitimate soteriological peace. Pray for those things to happen and they will have peace. So in the same way that I would recommend that you not simply pray for people to have peace, I would ask you to wait eagerly knowing that he is coming back, but not simply to pray for his return. Be godly. Don't just say, Lord, the world's getting bad. Won't you just come back? Be godly. Be the difference between legitimate biblical Christianity and false conversion. Be that in your home, you who are unequally yoked. I know that you do. Be that in your workplace, you who have friends who attend a Bible study and yet want nothing to do with the church. I know that you you do. Be that with your siblings, your children, your parents, your grandparents, your grandchildren, those whom you love, who you know are ungodly and yet profess to know Christ because they prayed a prayer. But they have no interest in godliness. Be godly. Be godly. How? By being godly with the body. Pursuing collective godliness. Wait eagerly, but be godly while you're waiting Eagerly. What if this is all foreign to me? What if what you're talking about has really taken me off guard? And, you know, I came here thinking that I'm a Christian, or at least maybe I want to be a Christian, but I've never really considered any of this before, and it's a little alarming to me that I would simply tell you to obey Jesus Christ, who said, repent and believe in the gospel. Trust Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ of the Bible, not the one of modern evangelicalism that's a a limp-wristed, weak, ungodly, non-sovereign pseudo-savior that might save you if you grant him the blessing of choosing him. No, no, no. Trust the Christ who is the sovereign king and who will destroy the ungodly, by incinerating the heavens and the earth and all the ungodly therein. Live a life that shows the difference. Father, with a flawed effort and utter inadequacy, it's been my desire this morning to honor you. And Lord, I pray that we as a local church would find ourselves to be faithful, that you would find us to be faithful, that you would energize us by the power of the Spirit of God to be faithful, that we'd not compare ourselves so much one to another or even with other churches, but that we would simply endeavor to be faithful. And that as a result of faithfulness, you would quicken the day of God that we would have the joy of being with you forever in eternity, all the more soon. But Lord, with equal fervor, we ask you to help us to be holy, 
to help us to separate ourselves from things that influence ungodliness. That we would establish parameters in our lives, that we would make no provision for the flesh, that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him and imitate him, and that we would surround ourselves with people who do the same. And we ask this for your great glory. Amen.